0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. All
1: right, you can open your copy of Scripture to Psalm 8. If you do not have your own copy, you can find one in the seat in front of you. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, it is on page 420. When you find it, you can stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You can be seated.
0: Well, you'll most definitely want to keep your Bible open there, your copy of Scripture to Psalm chapter 8. Starting today, over the next five Sundays, what we're going to be doing is looking at a little short series in the Psalms. We're starting with Psalm 8, and then we'll subsequently work our way up through Psalm 12 on week 5. But this morning, we find ourselves continuing a journey we started a couple years ago, of just slowly beginning to chew and eat on the Psalms, so that way we can feed ourselves with what in essence is like the hymnal... Uh, of of the scriptures. It's also a prayer book in that sense. A lot of these psalms are prayers put to music. And so when we come to the scriptures in that sense, what we begin to understand is this, is that what we have before us this morning is a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer song And it's King David who's going to be leading us to see something and to ask some particular questions specifically about this idea of humanity. And so our question that we're going to ask is going to be specifically around what we see there in verse 4, where David is going to ask, what is man that you're mindful of him But what we're going to come and find out is that this very famous psalm, which is quoted several times in the New Testament, actually isn't a psalm that's all about man. It is actually, at its very core and at its very center, a psalm that is extolling and inviting us to come and adore Yahweh Adonai, the Lord our Lord. And so we're going to start there as we work our way into this psalm. Sermon title this morning is going to come right out of verses 1 and 9. It's simply going to be titled, God's Majestic Name. And the main idea is just going to camp on this, the majesty of God and the exalted place of man in God's universe. What we're going to see is that man is no animal. He is higher than the animals. He's a little lower than the angels. In all of creation, man holds an exalted place in God's universe But we're going to ask a specific question, what is the purpose of humanity, and begin to answer that question by looking at God's majestic name, because that's what David wants us to come and see, okay? So we're going to pray, we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to do only what the Holy Spirit can do, to open our eyes to see Jesus in this text, to open our minds to understand the Scripture before us, so that way we might begin to grow in our submission and obedience to our Lord, okay? So I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing that John just encouraged us to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Maybe look to the left of you, look to the right of you, look at who is sitting next to you, someone in the Jesus family, and you have no clue what they're going through. But whatever situation they might find themselves in, what we do know is this, we need God's Word, and we need the God of the Word to penetrate to meet us right now, to set me aside as it were. You don't need just a word from from Pastor John. What we need to hear clearly is from the Lord. So let's pray. Let's ask Him to do that, and then we'll dive into the text, okay? Lord, corporately right now, we are lifting our prayers to You because of all that I've just stated. We want to see Jesus. We want to see the name, the majestic name of our God high and lifted up. We want to see the world around us come and submit to the good, gracious, merciful Lord that we know. The Lord who has saved us. So Father, I'm asking that right now that You would empower the preaching of Your Word. That this time that we spend together would be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. His power, His strength, and His ability to draw us to not put faith in men, but to come and firmly place our faith in the Son of Man the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, be magnified in this time so that as we leave here today, we would truly leave changed because we met God this morning through the preaching of His Word. Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ the King's name I pray. Amen. A great way to approach the Psalms is oftentimes to just ask the question what what is the Psalm driving at? What does the psalmist want us to understand about God? What does the psalmist want us to understand about maybe their situation and how that situation is driving them to God? And the question we can ask of Psalm 8, of our text this morning, really does come down to this question what is the purpose of humanity? What is the place of man within God's created order, the universe that that he has spoken to existence? Or more personally, how you can drill that down to you sitting in the seat right now listening to me, a question you can ask yourself is this, why do I exist and what do I exist for? Why do I exist? Why am I here? What do I exist for? Like, What's my purpose in life? From generation to generation, questions like these have haunted humanity, producing all kinds of answers. One such answer was proposed by an astronomer and an astrophysicist, a man named Carl Sagan. And in response to this kind of question and thinking, he responded this way, as long as there have been humans, we have searched for our place in the cosmos. Where are we? Who are we? asked Sagan. We find, and here's his answer we find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. In other words, we're just a speck of dust sort of just floating in this massively large universe, this cosmos. We're just insignificant. It's humdrum. Your life, basically, there's no real reason or rhyme to it. There's no meaning. And so from one of the top minds in modern science, an astronomer, astrophysicist, this is the best that we can get in answer to this question. But if we turn elsewhere, it just doesn't get much better. Paganism classically says man is a slave to forces superior to him, so you just need to submit and give yourself over to these paganistic ideas. The idea of nihilism relegates the purpose of humanity to nothingness. There is no reason or rhyme or purpose to your place in this world. It's just all a big load of nothing. Humanism says the place of man is to ditch any thoughts of a divine being, for man is alone, and thus man is to live for himself. Just give yourself to your pursuits and to your pleasures. Go and do you, get what you can, and then you die. But if proposed answers such of these are all that we have, then we are doomed to a sense of helplessness, and we'll be doomed to a sense of hopelessness. I think one of the reasons why, when you're just interacting with people in your workplaces, in the places of recreation, in your neighborhoods, your coworkers, your families who hold to these ideas, the reason why there's almost this tangible sense of helplessness and hopelessness that underlines just our culture and humanity today is because they do not have a theological answer to the question, why do I exist? What do I exist for? But contrary to all of these things that we've just heard about, the proposed answers of man, contrary to these proposals stands the Word of God. And more specifically, stands Psalm chapter 8. You see, in this psalm, Psalm 8, King David provides an answer to our question, what is man's place and what is man's purpose in the world? But notice what David does in seeking to give us an answer to that question. He answers the question not by starting with humanity, but instead by first starting with God and His glory. What David knows is this, if we are to gain a proper understanding of man's purpose in God's universe, then we must begin with a proper understanding of just how majestic Yahweh Adonai is in all the earth. You see, this is why David begins his psalm and ends his psalm with that that word, those words, that phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Like wrapping paper on a Christmas gift, David is wrapping Psalm 8 in such a way that he magnifies the transcendent majesty of God. So both verses 1 and 9 exalt God's majestic name. That's what you see for point 1 this morning. You look at the very beginning of the psalm, you look at the very end of the psalm, and David leads off and ends his psalm with God's majestic name. He is leaving no room for doubt when it comes to who he sees at the center when it comes to the question in verse 4. You don't start with man to get an answer about man's place and purpose in the world. In order to get an answer to man's place and purpose in the world, you must start with Yahweh. You must start with him. And so David tells us who this psalm is all about when he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What he's doing is he's calling us, he's inviting us to get real excited about the adoration and the worship and the splendor and the glory and the majesty of our God. That's what he's doing when he leads off this way in verse 1 and then says, remember this in verse 9. We are praising the Lord, all caps, L O R D. That is Yahweh. He is the living God. He is the great I am. And then He is the Lord, capital L, lowercase O R D. That is, He is Adonai. He is our master. He is the one ruling and reigning over us. He is our creator. And incomparable in his power, unsurpassable in his honor, Yahweh's name alone is excellent in all the earth. So to say that Yahweh's name is majestic in all the earth is to say the very person. And the very reputation of our great God has no rival. He's not just simply saying, you know, Yahweh or Adonai, just like you got Tom or Jan or John or Tara. He's not talking about those letters that we smush together, that we write on our birth certificate or death certificate. Or the, he's not talking about that. He's, when we talk about the name of our God, he's talking about the very essence of who he is. The person, the character, who he is and how he acts in light of who he is. He's calling us to praise the reputation and person of our great God and to say, Yahweh, Adonai, your name has no rival in all of the earth. That is why your name can be described as majestic. You see, this is exactly what Moses came to learn. If you go back into the book of Exodus, to Exodus chapter 34, When Moses has this interaction with the great I Am. When the Lord, Yahweh, descended in the cloud, passes before Moses in Exodus 34, and it's interesting that Moses records that Yahweh came proclaiming His name, and this is what he says to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what Moses is catching a glimpse of here is what we read in verse 1. Moses is catching a glimpse of just how majestic Yahweh's name is. His person and his reputation. Listen, Psalm 8 is no village melody sung to a village deity. David is not going small here. David is going big here. Psalm 8, what it is, it is a cosmos-encompassing hymn of praise. And it is declaring the unequaled splendor of Yahweh's majesty. So to start this psalm in this way, it's as if David is saying, listen, I want you to draw near. Come here. I want to show you something. I want to remind you something about who God is. He's saying if we are going to grasp Our place in the world, we must start here by first remembering just how majestic our Lord God's name is in all the earth. The beginning and end of my existence, the beginning and end of your existence centers on him whose great name is majestic throughout all the earth. You must begin here, says David." Thus, at its core, Psalm 8 is really an invitation. By him walking through the door of declaring majesty to Yahweh's name, it's an invitation to you and me to get really excited over the majesty of God. But notice that as David continues in to the psalm, he further heightens this invitation by highlighting the irony of God's strength. So he's not done yet, as you roll into the latter part of verse 1, in verse 2, he's not done yet inviting us to get really excited about the majestic name of Yahweh. Because next he's going to do is he's going to highlight the majesty of Yahweh's name by focusing on the irony of his strength. So look again, starting in verse 1, how David begins to write. He says this, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, notice he says, You have set your glory above the heavens. But then he starts to say something that we wouldn't really expect him to say there in verse two Yahweh, your glory is above the heavens. And oh, yeah, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger if you were to look at Psalm 8 as a whole and you were to take out verse 2, there is a pretty logical connection there. Verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and on he goes. But he doesn't do that. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, we have a verse 2 in Psalm 8. And so what we see here is this irony of God and His strength not only being displayed in the heavens as you peel back and you look heavenward at the moon and the star and the sky and the heavenly host, but he says you can also look down at something as insignificant, seemingly inconsequential as babies and infants that seem so weak. And both of them serve to establish the strength and the majesty of Yahweh's name. So to further highlight God's majesty, David is simply saying, listen, I want you to look high, then I want you to look low. It's an invitation to go high and low. In verse 1, he reminds us that God has set His glory above the heavens. In Psalm 19, David tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words, God's creation reflects the beauty of God who created it. The Apostle Paul was driving at this same truth in Romans chapter 1. When the apostle said, what can be known about God is plain to those who suppress the truth about God, the question that we are meant to ask is why? Why is it true that what can be known about God is plain to those who suppress the truth about God? Paul answers, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, He says. So there's something about the world God has created. We can look at it and see that it doesn't stop there. Creation just serves merely as a mirror that's meant to bounce us and reflect us right up to the God who created it. This is what you see when you look high, says David. God's glory is tattooed in the heavens. And when we stop and survey creation, we can learn true things about the majestic splendor of our God. But also, he says, don't forget just to look high, but I also want you to look low, he says. Look low, though Yahweh's splendor is splashed across the heavens, notice, says David, Yahweh has also established strength out of the mouths of babies and infants of all people. He doesn't say he established the strength out of really big, hairy chested, muscle men. He doesn't say that he's established strength out of great warriors who have won many battles. He says, go downstairs to the nest. Peek into the crib. Look at the infant. Look at the baby. And what you will be able to see is somehow these infants, these babies, whether he's talking about actual infants and babies or something figurative in the sense of something that's weak, dependent, seemingly inconsequential, seemingly insignificant, what he's saying is this, even here in weakness, Yahweh is establishing the strength of His majestic name in all the earth. Herein lies the irony of God's strength. You go outside. It's nighttime. You move out into the country so that the, just the, the light pollution of the, the city dims down. You look high to the heavens And when you begin to see the Milky Way come into focus, the Big Dipper hanging in the sky there for a while... There were three planets set up in the south. If you were looking at that, you can see a full moon come drifting across the sky, clear night sky. It's so bright it's almost like someone has left a light on outside. What you do is you begin begin to become overwhelmed by the vast grandeur of the starry host. And when you look at that beautiful Night sky lit up by the stars and the moon that our sovereign Lord has flung into the heavens. We just have no problem rightly sensing the transcendent glory of our God. You don't go out there and go, you know what? God's really puny, isn't he? No, you go out there and almost buckles your knees a little bit to sense just how transcendent and majestic and glorious God is. But, says David, when we look low to what seems so inconsequential, so dependent, when we look low to something such as babies and infants, we have a harder time seeing how God could possibly establish the strength of his his majestic name, and something so weak and so insignificant. But I'm telling you, says David, I'm telling you, he says in verse 2, what seems inconsequential, what seems so insignificant, what seems so weak to us, God delights to use to overwhelm that which is mighty. That's the way God works, and he loves to work in this way. You see, a great question to ask of a text like this, if you were reading through Psalm 8 in your devotional time, let's say, it's morning time, coffee in your hand, maybe you're reading some verses before you go to work. You come to verse 2 and you see David saying, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. A great question would be to pause and ask, well, how in the world do babies and infants establish Yahweh's strength? Anyone asking that question right now? How in the world is that happening? How does the little baby, the infant, the seemingly inconsequential and the weak, depend? How, how do babies and infants establish Yahweh's strength? Or if you want to come at this question another way, you could ask this, what strength is God establishing here? Because that's what he says. It's not a, que- a question of, Are they or are they not establishing strength? David is saying they are establishing strength, these little babies, these little infants. So a question we could ask in another way is saying, well, what strength is being established through these weak, seemingly inconsequential, dependent little ones? in my argument when you scan back and look at the whole of scripture or when you more narrowly zoom in on psalm 8 in particular my argument is this it is likely the strength of praise it's the strength that comes when that which is weak begins to praise god out of their weakness out of their dependence in that moment the one seemingly inconsequential the one seemingly weak, the one who is just entirely dependent, when praise is on the lips of this weak, dependent one, what God is doing in that moment is establishing the strength, the majesty, and the glory and the splendor of his name over his foes, over his enemies, over his avengers, it says here. The foes and enemies and the seekers of revenge against God are stilled, verse 2 says, silenced. Put the silence when praise is on the lips of that which is weak. See, just think about this. Praise of God is highly powerful even if it comes from sources we would consider weak. Nobody has trouble saying that person looks strong. They're praising God. Surely that strong person praising God is establishing strength. Sure, no no one has any argument with that. But think about this, praise of God is highly powerful even if it comes from sources we would consider weak. Or I think we can tweak that sentence a little bit and say this, praise of God is highly powerful especially when it comes from sources we consider weak. You see, when that which is weak, seemingly insignificant and inconsequential, praises God, that praise born out of weakness Serves to establish God's strength over his enemies. So when David says what he says here in verse 2, what he's doing is this. He's speaking of the lethal punch that praise packs. He's saying there's something powerful, good, and right when the people of God, in their weakness, in their dependence, in the eyes of the world seemingly inconsequential, in the eyes of the world, as Pastor John was talking about, Followers of God, seemingly insignificant, find themselves in particular moments where they are praising God out of that weakness, it packs a lethal punch. Just think how the praises of God's people, just think how the praises of God's people, so often lifted in weakness, put to silence God's enemies. You can jump into the New Testament. We see this in at least two places. Jesus leaned into this truth when he confronted the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Jesus quotes Psalm 8 verse 2. Do you remember the scenario? The religious leaders are getting all in a twist. They're indignant because Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's just been healing some people. He's been displaying the power of God. Some children come along. They begin to cry out to Jesus in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. What are they doing right there when those children come along and are singing, Hosanna, the Son of David, here he is, it's Jesus? What are they doing? They're praising. They're praising God right there in that moment. So the religious leaders, all in a twist, Come to Jesus and say to Him, Do you hear what these children are saying to you? And Jesus said to them, Yes, (laughs) I hear. But do you not know what it says in the Old Testament? Do you not know what it says in the Scriptures? Have you never read, insert Psalm 8 verse 2, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? Notice what Jesus says here. You have prepared praise. So what do we see here? We see the children's praise challenges Jesus' enemies, establishing his strength there in that moment. Or what you can do is jump further into the New Testament. You go forward to Acts chapter 16. The apostle Paul, his ministry missionary buddy named Silas, are thrown into prison for having commanded an evil spirit to come out of a slave girl. Do you remember this? Acts chapter 16. They're in Philippi. There's a little girl, slave girl, who is being controlled by a spirit, a demon of divination. Paul and Silas show up preaching the gospel. The little slave girl keeps following them around saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They're bringing you salvation, a way to be saved. In a moment, I love this, of true honesty, it says Paul got greatly annoyed. He's like, ah, like, you know, like what? Ah." And so he looked at her and he basically says, like, in the name of Jesus, I want you to come out. And he calls that evil spirit to come out, comes out. The little girl's healed. She's been released. She's no longer enslaved to this demon. But the owners of the slave girl get tweaked. Why? Because the slave girl was making them a lot of cash. And it says they realized their source of gain was now gone. So they get tweaked. They look at Paul and Silas and say, we want you thrown in jail. And the master of the jail, the prison guard, who's over it all says, I'm gonna take my job seriously. And so what he does is he goes and throws them into the inner prison, says Luke, and fastens their feet in the stocks. Then Acts 16, verse 25, Luke records about midnight, Paul and Silas were really salty to God for having gotten in this situation, so they lift some curses to God. No. About midnight, Paul and Silas decided to get real salty and cuss out the prison guard because they really hated their situation. No. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Praise. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now here comes the establishing of strength. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everybody's bonds were unfastened. You see, there were Paul and Silas. There they were in the midnight hour. They were weak, needy, dependent. inner prison, feet in the stocks, No strategy for escape, no system, no structure to lean on to get them out of their predicament. But what they did have in their weakness was prayer and praises to God, so they let it rip in the midnight hour. And in that moment, the praises of God's people put to silence God's enemies in that moment. In that moment, God established the strength of his majestic name when out of the mouth of weakness... Out of the mouth of Paul and Silas, praise poured forth. And for some of us here this morning, we find ourselves in that similar midnight hour. Now, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you're not finding yourselves stuck, locked up in a Philippian jail. But you do find yourselves in a place of weakness. Your current situation is one of need, your current circumstance is one of total dependence upon God, and while you don't know much, what you do know is this, there's no strategy right now, no system right now, no structure right now is going to immediately solve my problem where I'm at currently. Meanwhile, the foes and the enemies and the seekers of revenge in your world are in the wings salivating over your assumed demise because look as they scoff at how weak you are and how dependent you are upon God. But in that moment of weakness, what you do is the one thing you can do. You raise a song of praise to your God. And in that midnight moment, what seems so inconsequential as your voice lifts to the heavens, It overwhelms what is mighty to the praise of Yahweh's majestic name. Has anyone ever been there before? Have you ever been in a place before where you're just like, man, this? I'm weak, I'm needy, the suffering hurts, the doubts have no question, the temptations are near, things haven't gone the way I'd hoped they would have gone. I feel so weak, I feel so dependent, I have no strategy, no hope, no system, no structure, but what I do have is this a song of praise on my lips. And in the midnight hour of your soul, that's what you do. You lifted a song of praise to God. Yeah? Anyone ever been there before? I've talked to some of you before. You've been brought low, you were laid flat, you were crushed. You had no clue what tomorrow was going to bring. The pain was excruciating. You had no clue how this situation was going to get solved. This was not the way life was planned by you. But what you did have in that moment was a song of praise on your lips to the living God. Amen. Friends, I'm telling you, if you have found yourself brought low, and in the midnight hour of your soul, only, and this isn't a bad thing to only have, but all you had was a song of praise to the Lord. I'm telling you, you have experienced the realities of Psalm 8 that David is talking about. And in that moment, the strength of Yahweh's majestic name Was established and firmed up in that moment. I'm telling you, friends, the atheist and the agnostic have no answer for this. The enemies of God have no answer for this. The enemies of God would say, in that situation, why on earth are you singing a song of praise to your God? Couldn't your God do something to get you out of this? Isn't your God just a hoax? And shouldn't we just be humanistic, nihilistic, paganistic? Aren't we just merely like, turbocharged apes running through this world? Aren't we just supposed to be moving to the biological impulses because we're just sort of protoplasm glued together? We live, we die, then we're just become wormful. Isn't that where we're at? It doesn't make sense for someone to come along and say, I'm so low, I'm so weak, I'm feeling so inconsequential, so insignificant, but in that moment, I will do this. I will raise a song of praise to my God. It astounds the watching world around because they would say, you should be cursing your God right now. But instead of curses, out comes praise, and it does what verse 2 says. The foes, the enemies, the avengers of God and His people are put to silence. Born on the lips of weak, dependent, But praising men and women who recognize that my God, my Lord, Yahweh Adonai, His name is majestic in all the earth, and I will still praise Him even in the midst of this storm, even in the midst of this dependence, even in the midst of this weakness. You see... When David gets to this point, and I've really pressed long and hard on this here, when David gets to this point, it's as if he gets done saying what he says in verse 2 and turns around and says, okay, now that we've established this fact, we can get to the question of talking about man. So do you see what he's doing here? He's just simply saying, I mean, you need to elevate. You need to elevate looking to God, adoring Him, exalting Him. And then we can finally get to the purpose of man. And that's what point three is. What is man's purpose? Look in your Bible starting in verse three. Look at how he continues. When I look at your heavens, look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, moon and the stars which you have set in place, here's the question it provokes within David. What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. See, having looked to the splendor of the night sky, it provokes David to wonder at the exalted place of humanity in God's created order. The heavens, moon, and stars, they all scream one thing, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But David can't help but wonder why Yahweh cares so much about man. It is a wonderfully perplexing reality. Us mere mortals, seems so insignificant compared to the vast awe-inspiring heavens flung into the night sky. Yet, says David, yet in his infinite wisdom, God set humanity as the apple of his eye. This simply astonishes David, spurring him to marvel that God is not only mindful of us, but this majestic Glorious, worthy of all honor, splendor, being attributed to him. This God actually cares for me. So you read these verses and you go, wait a minute. You're saying this Yahweh, whose name is majestic in all the earth, he is mindful of me? This God is Caring for me? And the answer is yes, he does. Now, the reason David can say this is because David just simply knows his Bible. The answer to the question in verse four, What is man that you are mindful of him? is found in verses five through eight. He says, Here's the answer. Here's why God is so mindful of man and cares for him. It's because you, verse 5, you, Yahweh, have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. You, Yahweh, have crowned him with glory and honor. You, Yahweh, have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's his answer. In saying this, what David is doing is he's going back to the beginning. This sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1. When you read about how Yahweh created man in His own image creating them in the image of God, male and female, giving to man and woman royal status, crowning man and woman with glory and honor, marking them out as the pinnacle of His creation, created for a purpose. What was that purpose according to Genesis 1? To exercise dominion over the works of God's hands, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. This is the purpose and place of you, man, woman, created in the image of God, this is why you exist here on this earth, is to recognize I'm not a mere animal. I was created a little bit lower than the angels. There is an exalted status bestowed upon humanity that is absolutely glorious, and that glorious, dignifying, value-giving status placed upon us from God, is meant to then work itself out in the world by exercising dominion, fruitfulness, multiplying, subduing the earth. This is what God is doing in Genesis 1. Bestowing the utmost dignity, value, and worth upon humanity, which flies in the face of our culture who wants us to believe that we are nothing more than turbocharged apes, as I said earlier, moving to the sway of our biological impulses. But to believe such rubbish is to miss the mark entirely. And David calls us to look to our majestic Lord in order to know the purpose for our existence in His universe, to bear His image as we exercise dominion over His creation with all things put under our feet, period. Now, if you're thinking here this morning, and I know you are, because you guys are all extremely brilliant, there is a problem sitting in your lap right now, and that problem is a very little word that proves to be a big problem in verse 6. So if you're paying attention, that last phrase I just spoke, we have been created to exercise dominion with God putting all things under our feet. It's that little three-letter word that gives us a big problem, and it's that little word what? A-L-L. All. Verse 6. You have put all things under his feet. You see, when David says you, Yahweh, have put all things under man's feet, humanity's feet, the problem is we walk out these doors, we go into the world around us and go, I don't see that happening in my workplace. I don't see that happening in my own home. I don't see that happening in my neighborhood. I don't see that happening in my relationships. I don't see that happening in fill in the blank. So you read verse 6, and you really, you're like, all? Like, all things? Lord, you've placed all things under the feet of humanity. In our post Genesis 3 world, we don't see man ruling and controlling the whole created order. As a matter of fact, we go outside and it looks like cancer is ruling over the created order. It looks like viruses are ruling over the created order. It looks like suffering is ruling over the created order. It looks like political tyrants are ruling. But while we don't see humanity living out the Psalm 8 reality to its fullest, what we can do is we can go outside and recognize this. We can take a deep breath and a sigh of relief, because while we don't see man ruling in its fullest of Psalm 8, we do see one man who is ruling and living out Psalm 8 reality in its fullest, and that one man is Jesus. There's a reason why the New Testament saints has no qualms about making a beeline from Psalm 8 to Jesus over and over again. Because of his suffering unto death, Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor over the whole created order. That's the argument of the writer in Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2. You can go back and listen to the sermon on that from this past year. He says, listen, I know what humanity was created to do, and humanity isn't quite living up to the task, but there has been one man who is doing this He has been crowned with glory and honor, the language you see there in verse 5. And the reason why he has been crowned with glory and honor is because of his suffering unto death on the cross. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 1 and actually says because of his resurrection from the dead, what we see is that Jesus has subjected all things to his feet. And then Paul further explains this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, these all things that have been subjected underneath his feet because of his resurrection from the dead means this, Jesus has even subjected death itself beneath his feet. So while man as such does not yet fully enjoy the destiny mapped out for him in Psalm 8 with rock rock, Solid certainty we can declare one man does. And that is what gives us hope to go out into this coming week. Hope because ultimately our God was so mindful and so caring of us that he sent this one man to become a weak and vulnerable baby, also that he might give his life as a ransom for many. And so the question is. Do you know this one man in a saving way? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 5 says you've been folded into the kingdom of this Christ. And what he is doing is gathering to himself a people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue who will reign with him forever in the way it was meant to be in Psalm 8. But it's not going to come about because we as humans are so phenomenal. It's going to come about because the phenomenal one, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh, came to earth, was born to die, so that through his death we might live and be folded into his kingdom and now begin to rule and reign alongside him as redeemed ones, washed clean, are sins forgiven by the Lamb who was slain. And when that kind of reality begins to sink into your bones, you'll be able to look at verse 9. And with knees sort of trembling a little bit, you will be able to go, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize how needy and dependent we are. We are just innately needy and dependent creatures. Created to need you, to need, find salvation in you, to lean on you all our days. And so I'm asking, Lord, would you just further deepen that into our hearts this morning? Would you lead us to be able to shout songs of praise? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. And not only when times are easy, but when times are hard and magnify just how weak and dependent we are. Lord, help us to raise a song of praise to you, silencing the enemies and establishing the strength of your majestic name. Lord, someone here this morning does not know you in a saving way. And my hope is that you will draw them. I pray that you would draw them to repent of their sin and turn to you for salvation alone. God, do this so again the strength of your majestic name might receive the praise, glory, and honor it's worthy to receive. God, do this for your name's sake. Do these things for your glory. It's in the powerful name of Christ the King, I pray. Amen.